Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tell me, how would you like to go 45 minutes without hearing the words referendum, Scottish National Party, reshuffle, or clegg? I may have just the thing for you. Brace yourself for an at times emotional journey into the work of one London organisation. It is Saturday, the 9th of May 2015. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a song through from your front door. I am in Pimlico for today's recording and I'm fast coming to the suspicion that nobody actually lives in Pimlico. I've seen a lot of hotels, I've seen a lot of off-licenses, a few restaurants, no actual housing. Is this a place of a transient population? I'm not sure. I'm here on Belgrave Road and I'm at the Royal London Society for Blind People with me, Dr Tom Pay. Hello, Tom. Hello, how are you? Not too bad. Uh, What's going on with Pimlico? Pimlico is a really really vibrant place. Um, You have to get behind the shops in order to find the people, but I assure you they are there. Um, And are there transient people? Yes, there are. I mean, we have uh, lots of people who are moving in and out of the passport office. And certainly when I'm coming to work, um, I hear lots of people with uh, pulley cases behind them, which are just a nightmare for somebody like me who can't see properly. And why so many hotels here? I guess it's probably close to Victoria Station. And, um, you know, me being an Irishman, um, Victoria Station was always a great uh, getting off point if you wanted to come and work in London and if you wanted to move into the capital. So uh, perhaps that's it. Um, But maybe also um, it's just because it's just a beautiful place to come to. Well, we're, as I say, at the Royal London Society for Blind People, and it's in a, an office block. Uh, I think you take up rather more space than I imagine. This is quite a, a sizable organisation, you can immediately see. Yeah, clearly. We look after um, a lot of blind young children and young people in the capital. We're 176 years old. We started uh, in London, up in Hatton Garden. And we've moved around London a bit. We're still in London in a, uh, an office here in uh, Belgrave Road. So if any of you guys want to come and drop in and have a coffee, please do so. But here in Belgrave Road, we've been here for about uh, 20 years now, uh, looking after, as I said, blind people and their parents. Some of the statistics are immediately alarming. The overlap, overlap's not a strong enough word, between Poverty and blindness was the thing that leapt out at me straight away. But that's by no means the only other thing. There are other issues clearly attendant upon blindness or a partial sightedness, such as depression and one or two other things that we'll talk about as we go ahead. What really interested me straight away about that list was that it was suggested there that they were actually potentially more damaging than the loss of sight. 
Well, one of the questions that people always ask, uh, and maybe because I lost my sight as an older person, they say, is it, is it better to have lost your sight as an adult or never to have seen at all? Well, let me tell you that um, it's by far, in terms of your life chances, it's by far better that you lose your sight as an adult, if you have to lose your sight, that is. Uh, if you lose your sight as a, um, as a child, then uh, you're more likely to grow up in a broken home you have a 90% chance of never working for more than six months in your life. You've got a 60% chance of living throughout your life with chronic depression or anxiety. And you've got over an 80% chance of never forming a positive, nurturing relationship with another human being. So, I mean, it's pretty miserable. Um, it's pretty much a state of affairs. And it's something that um, I guess is not that widely known. In a sense, you know, we are the first charity, possibly even in the world, I don't want to be too um, big-headed about it, who are tackling the issues of poverty and isolation as the root outcomes of losing your sight. And in doing that, we help people clearly to get over the, the fact that they can't see and to get the skills that you need to be a functioning person but you need emotional skills um, to be able to survive in life. You need to be resilient. You need to be able to fit in all of these things. You um, have a very, very low chance, as things stand at the moment, of being able to do. And that's why you don't get a job. So our whole uh, raison d'etre here is to work with the parents who just are just so bemused about having this, you know, it's bad enough having a, a, a regular child who nobody gets a, a textbook on how to bring up a child, but you certainly don't get a textbook on how to bring up a blind child, uh, nor do you get a textbook on how devastating this could be to the rest of your family because the research also shows that not only does the, is the family more likely to break up than normal, but the siblings of a blind child are likely to do less well in life than those who don't have a blind child in their family. So you know, this is a devastating um, condition, something that we just have to do something about. It's easy and obviously devastatingly saddening to think of couples not being able to cope under the the strain. Is it the knock-on then to the siblings or are there other factors that mean that the siblings do less well? Well, it's generally speaking, if um, parents are coping positively, then they can teach the, you know, the child how to cope positively and they can teach the family how to cope positively because, you know, the first job of parents, um, leaving the, love, uh, the loving uh, part of it aside, is to be teachers to the uh, children to grow up as healthy adults. So if the parents end up, um, in a position where they themselves are frightened, where they themselves are confused, and uh, because they're logical, caring adults, they're going to learn how they're going to cope. But if they don't cope in the right way, then the whole family goes askew. Um, uh, so you know, it, but they have the skills to be the parents. What we need to do is work with that skill to be the parents and help them to be even better parents, given the unfortunate circumstances in which they find themselves. We always say there's two oh god moments for parents. It's oh god, I've just been told that my child won't be able to see properly, and the other one is oh god, what's going to happen to my child when I die? Um, you know, we have to be there to make sure that both of those oh god moments are as palatable and as easy as they can be, and that hopefully at the end of a parent's life, that they're absolutely confident that the child is going to get on and do well in life and have a happy life, just like any parent wants for any child. Right. So what I'm imagining then, given what you've said about the lack of the ability to form social bonds. Uh, it may well be that one of the parents is still the, uh, I'm not sure if care is going to be the right word, but uh, they're, they're going to be feeling the burden of responsibility right through their lives. Yeah, um, you know, I don't want to be sexist about it, but uh, the statistics show that clearly that its mum has the, uh, the, the dominant role in, in helping a young child to cope. It's mum who teaches the child 
um, the skills of, we call it empathy, or if you want to be really flash about it and sort of cosmopolitan and, and start looking to Harvard for the for the, the answer, they call it emotional intelligence these days, but it's the same thing. You learn empathy from your parents. You learn that in the first nine months of your life. You learn that because of the games uh, that mum and dad play with baby when baby's in the cot um, and the touch and the uh, laughing and the talking, but also the way the mum smiles, you know, the detailed eye movements, all of these things are all learned which allow the child to read body language. If you can't read body language, um, not just audibly, but most importantly visually, then you're in real trouble. And of course, 80% of um, emotional intelligence is sight-based. You need sight to be able to do it. If you haven't got it, then you need something else to be able to, um, to, to get you through it. Those skills are available and um, our mission in life is to just go out and teach them. Sounds simple, but actually um, without it, every day, just in the city of London, four children become one of life's unseen failures. And four people who lost their sight in you die, never having had a fulfilled life. This is just you know, we just can't wait around with this. This is an emergency. It isn't a small job. It is a very, very big job. We'll talk, if we if we may, more about your own experience of becoming blind and how you work through that. But I wanted to try to bridge that gap because I guess everybody at, at one point has closed their eyes and tried to imagine how they'd cope if they couldn't see anything. But if you haven't got any of those, you've talked about emotional intelligence and reading people's faces and other body language and so forth, but also just knowing what the world looks like and understanding what shape things are and distances between things and all that kind of stuff. How do you go about beginning to equip perhaps the parent with the tools that they need to bring the child up and to work around those issues? Well, you, you, you brought up a very fundamental point, which is just about spatial Awareness, you know, just knowing where you are in relation to everything else is quite difficult. If you leave a blind child on the floor in, um, you know, just say on his back on a carpet, it'll never move, right? Um, by the age of two, it won't be able to crawl. And the reason for that is because it, 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 it never, it never realizes that there is space beyond itself. And it thinks it will it will feel that the world is um, just that piece of carpet with mummy's um, voice or daddy's voice. So getting the child to move around is a skill in itself. But we can we do and we teach parents how to do that. Um, it isn't rocket science, you know. It is, it is about moving the child around, giving the child different experiences in different places, experiencing different sounds. Um, I'm generally building up that confidence that says, well, if I move forward, then I'm going to find something nice at the end of my journey. Yeah. So we, we do that. Um, you know, teaching a blind child to smile is, is uh, perhaps one of the most powerful things that you can do. Um, you know, I've, we have sessions where mums and dads come to just to talk about the problems they're having and to share those with other um, parents who are having similar problems. And we often hear saying, you know, I just wish Johnny wasn't born. Um, you know, and, the, and the guilt that comes with that. Uh, and then you, you, when you ask why, they'll say, well, because, you know, I just there's no bond between Johnny and myself. He doesn't smile. You know, there's no reaction. Well, of course... Johnny doesn't know how to smile. And you learn how to smile by seeing somebody smile. And once you smile once, then the neurons that cause you to smile are fired and you do it automatically after that. Yeah? And if you're an Irishman, you never stop smiling like me. But the point is that once you know how to smile, then you do it. And if you, you know, when you bring your baby back to smiling... And you see that just bond, that you know that that gushing love that only a mum or a dad can have for a baby. It's just fantastic. It just you know you just think, wow, I just love coming to work here. As I formulate it in my mind, I know this question runs the risk of being crass, but the sort of information that you're talking about there to um, uh, instruct somebody through those steps could presumably be slapped onto a website and job done uh, so it seems obvious that the Royal Society must have a deeper role than that and I, I imagine 
simply knowing that you exist and knowing that there are people you can talk to is crucial well the society is mainly about trust that we see ourselves as um part of the family we, you know with our job we think is to just be in there and when mum and dad or the baby the young person or the uh, siblings have a problem and they just want to either have a moan or um they really genuinely want a problem or sometimes they've got really innovative solutions so they ring up and say look we tried this and it really worked and um so we can be a hub and we can pass that information on um just being involved um that way in a very private way in families in the lives of young people um it is a a grave responsibility and requires tremendous professionalism um but uh, secondly it's just a, a, an honor beyond anything that you can imagine and you know you, you so we have to and we take our duty of trust um very very seriously so yeah you can't achieve emotional intelligence or emotional resilience or just being able to fit in without learning it from other human beings that can only be learned face to face it can't be learned um, online. If it could, then we wouldn't have so many people bent out of shape today. So it's about teaching and, and nurturing and tutoring and supporting. Yeah. yeah. Something that struck me, and I think this perhaps goes down to anxieties that people have about the prospect of dealing with somebody who's partially sighted or blind, uh, is about uh, concerns around embarrassing oneself and saying the wrong thing or overstepping a line or understepping a line, all that kind of thing. Is part of what you do about educating people who have nothing to do, actually, or think they have nothing to do with partial sightedness or uh, blindness? Um, yeah, clearly. Uh, yeah, they, first of all, this thing about blind people and embarrassment um, is, is a great hobby horse of mine. Um, I think if you're an individual who doesn't accept yourself, and you don't accept the fact that you're blind, um, or you're unhappy with who you are because you are blind, then um, any help that anybody gives you is more is seen more as an intrusion. To be quite frank, you know, I know some blind people who do react um, very badly to somebody coming up and saying, can I help you? Um, I've got a guide dog, um, and he happens to be a particularly attractive guide dog. And uh, I always say if I was about 30 or 40 years younger and I was single, then I would be absolutely in business with this guide dog. Because the number of people who stop me um, and say, um, oh, can we take a picture of your guide dog? And and want to say hello to him when we're walking. Uh, You know, I could get quite upset, but I don't. Um, I just think it's great. I love people. And I'm very cool with who I am. Um, And I'm very cool about with what I can do. And I'm very cool about what. I can't do. So, you know, that that's it. Very funny story was that um, a few days ago, um, I had to go to a meeting um, in another part of London, and I went along with my dog, and, um, and we got to the correct street, but um, I was around where the office was, but I couldn't figure out where it was. And uh, so I rang the person I was going to meet, and while I was doing that, I was kind of just kind of walking around in circle because I just wanted to walk around in a circle. And um, a lady came up and said, yeah, can I help you? And I just said, well, I'm looking for this particular office. She said, oh, I think it's across the road. And she brought me across the road. And then she turned me around in a circle a couple of times as she looked for it and then figured out that actually it wasn't across the road and uh, and she needed to rush off anyway. So I was left not knowing which direction I was looking in across the road from where I was supposed to be. And the people who came down from the office couldn't find me. So, But you know, it was a good laugh. I have to say it was a good laugh. Now, you could get angry about it. Um, coming back to how does anybody, sighted or unsighted, know when it's appropriate to smile? Well, there's two things. Um, if you happen to have the gift of sight, you can you read it in the other person's eyes that they're anticipating a smile. Or if you are blind, you can hear it in their voice um, because people have a particular way of telling jokes or um, telling humorous things. And you know, there's a different timing to it. It's slightly different um, tone in their voice. It's slightly different inflections. You just get practiced at it. For a child, we teach them the very simple things because mommy, if mommy wants baby to smile, 
mommy gushes at the baby hello baby <laughs> right mm. you're lovely and so if you teach that then the baby will smile and then the baby will smile and then you know get used to more things and also we combine that with touch you know because mommy say sorry yeah no you can't see me but i'm kind of doing an imitation of mommy tickling the baby so you know there's lots of things that go on where you can use other cues that are not sight in order to teach uh, baby things. But the most important thing is that at the end of it, baby is emp- baby understands that A, it's an individual, but B, it's part of a, a wider group of people at this moment in time known as the family. I have certainly read a study about a year ago that suggested what what is in plain sight, that women use, on average, a greater tonal range in the way they talk than do men. Are there any knock-on effects then from from what you're saying here? Do blind children have a harder time reading men? I'm not sure. I must. I'll have to ask that question of blind people. But um, certainly, a, a blind children uh, reading their dads no because again it's just that rep- constant repetition I must read that study because you know being an Irishman I try to put as many tones as I can into my conversation but uh, I guess women um, have um, much higher intuitive levels than men so they would be you know, they're much more better emotional uh, communicators generally speaking than men but emotional intelligence isn't all about emotion emotional intelligence is about responding appropriately it's about you know not getting if you are faced with aggression to be able to deal with it properly if you if you're faced with a dangerous situation to be able to deal with it properly so a lot of things that are involved in emotional intelligence other than just being able to enter into an emotionally intelligent conversation although that itself is a very very important part of it because if you can't do it then you can't be part of a team and if you can't be part of a team generally speaking you can't get a job that statistic you mentioned at the beginning is uh terrifying really six months of of work and, and no more than that on average in a lifetime yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. You know, you know if you can think of when your mum held you and she thought that um, you, you wouldn't be just doing um, gainfully employed doing podcasts with people like me, but uh, unemployed, uh, then, uh, and you had, she had a 90% chance of raising somebody who had never worked. I think that's a pretty awful place to be. Um, you know, that's why we say that um, a blind child can't wait. Neither can a, the, the mum or dad of a blind child. They can't wait either because every day in, um, that we, um, we don't do something or we as a charity can't afford to do something is a day that another person starts to slip down the tube. There's a tension here, and uh, we'll, we'll be going to our entirely appropriate uh, sponsor for a, a quick word in just a moment. But there's a tension between, I, I think, the empowerment of people who have uh, whatever form of disability and quite a strong campaign across the board in recent decades for the general population to see these people as people rather than as, as some other category. But balanced against that, there are these very particular uh, vulnerabilities that people we're talking about blind people uh, here have and help that they need that's specific to their disability how do you manage that tension between those two factors well this is there's a long history in the disability movement and um, I mean most people know that the disability movement and current thinking on disability mainly came out of the Vietnam vets in uh, in America who just weren't prepared to take the discrimination any longer Uh, and I think that um, thanks to them and many many other campaigners since then um, people generally see disabled people as people Uh, but for me and I I may get a lot of criticism for this but I think the pendulum may have swung a little bit too far insofar as um, it's now up to us as disabled people to see ourselves as part of society. Um, So we have as big a part to play in becoming part of society as society has um, the part to play in, in allowing us being part of society. What, what do you have in mind when you say that? Well, again, it's this whole thing about, um, you know, you you have you can get two reactions if you want to have a blind person across the road. You can get an idiot like me who just laughs their heads off, or you get somebody who get very upset. And, um, and people can't, uh, generally speaking, can't predict that. They should be able to predict it. 
you know, the most successful time for blind people in London was during the Second World War when blind people came in and they worked in factories, um, the same as everybody else. Um, so they would get on a train, come into central London. People would say, where are you going? Um, and they would say they're going to Pimlico to do whatever it was they were going to do. They'd, this person would say, well, I'm going part of the way. They'd bring them part of the way, and then they'd hand them over to somebody else who was going the rest of the way. And blind people got around, they got into factories, um, they uh, they worked, they were seen as a uh, genuine part of society at the time, very, very good high contributors. And, and the reason for that was that um, you know, it was accepted that... Um, if when they couldn't do something for themselves, somebody else would help them to do it, and you know we should get back to that. Um, it is there is no shame in me being able to say I can't see and I need help. That doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't start looking for ways to help me solve the problems of my own. But isn't it a very lonely life? You can't have a laugh with somebody. Well, it sounds like an uphill struggle uh, attempting to get Londoners to behave more like they. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Belong to a community without there being a national crisis to help them along. <laughs> we'll be coming back in just a moment for more at the Royal London Society for Blind People after this. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30 day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and with me at the Royal London Society for Blind People, Dr. Tom Pay. And uh, Tom, you've picked out a selection from Audible, which you mentioned that you uh, use it. This must be a particularly useful service for people who can't see. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I'm a great fan of Audible. I don't say that just because they happen to sponsor this particular program. You know, I think that uh, one of the books, if you want to kind of understand this whole area of blindness and the, um, you know, the paucity of the um, kind of what you can see around you, a lovely book to read is The Road by Conor McCarthy. And it is available on Audible because I downloaded it as an Audible book. And McCarthy is a, is a great, I mean, he's one of America's great authors. Um, and this is a very bleak book, but it has in it, it, it explains the um, the kind of the close relationship that can exist between a dad and a child um, in horrendous conditions. I mean, it's just worth reading. I'm not going to say any more about it. It is just really worth reading. And I think you can see how a blind person can become more emotionally mature even with um, that monotoned monosyllabic type uh, dad uh, or male communication style fabulous book have a read can we talk about your personal experience of blindness is it appropriate to ask what your level of sightedness is and how that came about yeah um okay i see i've got what they call eight percent 
uh, upper nasal quartile vision in my left eye and um, just de- uh, just light sensitivity in my right eye. So that means that um, I pretty much can see a wall just before I hit it. Um, and I can identify that I've fallen down a hole after I have fallen down the hole. So I don't see very much. Um, and uh, please don't nick my wallet because I wouldn't be able to identify you. <laughs> I try and resist. <laughs> what happened? Right. Um, well, when I was a kid, I was nine. I, um, I fell off a, um, a tree. I was... I climbed up, we had a shop at home and we had a store out the back where we kept all the um, supplies. We were, so, but not, I was, we were told never to get up there, um, but I did. Um, and I brought my dog. At the time, we were playing cowboys and Indians, myself and a few friends. And my dog, I thought, was Rin Tin Tin, if anybody can go back that far. And the dog knocked me off the, uh, off the, <laughs> off the roof. And I knocked, I knocked my nose on a tree on the way down, got a piece of bark up my nose, which um, about 30 years later caused me to lose my sight. It was a, um, an immune reaction, um, and the doctors call it um, ocular histoplasmosis, uh, which is a lovely word for saying that um, pretty much your, the retina in your eye shatters. And, and yet this was a 30-year time bomb waiting to go off. Yeah, and had I been living in North America or someplace else, um, it would have been recognised as I was growing up and a handful of tablets would have sorted it out, but I wasn't. Um, you know, I'm, There were three cases in uh, Western Europe in the decade in which I got it, so um, you, know, you can't blame medical science. Um, and also, if I got it today, they probably would have been able to save my central vision, which is the bit you used to read and see detail. And they probably would have been able to save that in my left eye. But, hey, you know, it wasn't supposed to be. Um, so I ended up with, uh, as a consequence, with the best job in the world, which is chief executive of this wonderful organisation. It would be easy to imagine somebody going to a place of bitterness or to, to other dark emotions as a result of that. Um, you're good-humoured about it is that something you've had to learn to be yeah um i was an investment banker i was at the top of my my game really uh, when it happened to me and um i i find it very difficult to accept and impossible to accept because my whole um life my whole being was defined by what i did and um so um yeah i i went on the booze for four years um, and um, it, was, it wasn't a, pl- a very pleasant sight for people that were around me to see this uh, person whom they'd thought of before as resilient and talented uh, dissolve themselves in alcohol. But um, <clears throat> I was then sent by a, a very caring lady at the job centre to actually to the uh, organisation that I now lead to learn how to use a talking computer. Um, I can remember I was um, I was just so incensed that somebody would send me on a, a course to learn how to use a talking computer. Um, it, it and you know, even though I couldn't see properly, um, I could see a little bit more than I can today. Why they would send me to a blind place to learn to talk <laughs> to learn the computer? But uh, I met with some amazing blind people, and it was the first time that was okay to walk into things and have a laugh about it. And um, and we used to go to the pub and. You know, we um, brought a whole new meaning to the words blind drunk. Um, but, we, you know, we had a, an absolutely fabulous time. Uh, but the then chief executive, a man called Brian Cooney, he, um, he, he came down one day and he frog marched me up to where they were teaching these young people. Um, they were educating blind young people. Right? He just said, you're a bloody disgrace. Um, you know, you've had a job. Uh, that none of these people will ever have. You've been around the world in places that none of these people will ever get to. You've eaten food that none of these people will ever taste. And, um, you know, God knows you've drunk drinks that these people would never dream of. Um, And you can carry on and find the answers to your own problems in the bottom of a glass or you can do something about um, helping these folks in here. Um, And he was a big guy. He was a senior. He was an ex-senior rugby player. And if I could have seen him, um, better and if he was a bit smaller I probably would have hit him but um, I didn't, I went home and thought a lot about what he said and um, you know the man was absolutely right and it's sometimes you just meet kind wise people like him who will tell you the truth and I came out of myself and thought you know 
um, you, you need to get a life. You can't destroy everybody's life just because of a bit of misery in yours. You, you need to help these people that are um, uh, that just are in these dire straits. You know, they, like I described at the very beginning. You know, although we've been in existence for 175 years as a charity, underlying it, the lot of people who lose their sight as children hasn't changed. Um, um, it's just a disgrace. It's totally unacceptable. And, you know, I, every day I wake up, I thank Brian for having the courage to say what he said. I want to separate you from your job just for a moment. And we'll, we'll talk um, more about the society and its history in just a sec. Um, drawing on a personal experience, I get very quickly bored with... I'm, I'm very tall. I get very bored with that being referred to constantly. I suppose working on radio probably helps that to be eliminated. But you get bored hearing that same thing over and over again. And I wonder if there's a part of you that has been or, or gets fed up with blindness being the thing by which you are in, in, at least in part defined. Um, it's funny, um, when, you, when I moved on from myself and when blindness wasn't the thing that defined me and um, being an investment banker wasn't the thing that defined me it's funny how the world moves on as well um you know what defines me today is um is very simple you know i want to be a good dad i want to be a good husband i want to earn a few quid uh, so that i can um support my family um i want to be a an honest person that um lives with integrity um, and I want to have fun, and I want to be a bit naughty every now and again. And, um, you know, those are the things that are important. Um, but then what I do and what validates all of that is, uh, is the job that I do, insofar as not because of what I do for me, but what I do, what this job gives me the opportunity to do for other people. This whole thing about the more you give away, the stronger you get is very true. Um, so today, a lot of people come up to me and say, well, I wouldn't necessarily see you as blind. I don't think of you as blind. Um, and that upsets me a bit because um, I am. And, you know, it said, <clears throat> when people hand me stuff and say, oh, have a read of that. And you say, sure. And you stick it in your pocket and I'll read it next week or whenever I can get to something that would allow me to read it. Uh, or um, even better, again, could you sing it to me? You know, I, I don't get defined anymore by anything other than what I want to be defined by because of the way I, I conduct myself, I think, yeah? Um, and um, But, yeah, I mean, but people don't love me for my blindness. They only love me for my guide dog. <laughs> Who, by the way, has been uh, resting under the desk in a complete serene silence. Yeah, well, I mean, um, that's the way it is. If he doesn't do that, he doesn't get fed. No, I don't mean that. He's, he's an absolute fabulous um, dog, and um, I wouldn't be without him. He's, uh, I wrote to guide dogs when I got him to say, um, you know, thank you so much for a wonderful dog. Um, the most important thing I can say about my guide dog, Milo, is that he makes me happy, and he does, you know. Um, he's a big beamy smiley dog and uh, at least i think he is but he definitely loves me and i love him so it's, it's just wonderful we are big into uh, uh, london history on this podcast i hope you'll approve of my choice of spending much more time on the present of what the society does rather than go uh, too deeply into its history uh, but it would be good just to get a snapshot or a few snapshots perhaps from uh, was it the 1830s i think that it started yeah well we're 176 years old so i can't do the math that quickly but um i'm sure somebody can uh, they um <clears throat> we were founded by a man called thomas lucas and it's a absolutely fabulous story this right lucas was a um shipping broker from bristol and um he was clearly a very good uh, businessman because in the time uh, he had a number of clerks who had to handwrite all of the copies of the bills of lading that um he had to use and he got really fed up having to pay these people basically seven people to do the job that one person should be able to do but he didn't have the technology like photocopying and um, and so on so he invented three dots three different slightly different shaped dots and um, he arranged them in a way that formed the letters of the alphabet 
So he gave his um, now many reduced clerks these uh, things made in wood and they had to hammer them into the seven copies of the um, bill of lading and it all worked very well. So then um, when he'd made enough money, he thought, oh, this, well, now this could um, be used by blind people. And um, and he spotted that actually in London it was uh, quite depraved insofar as um, blind people were never really taught the Bible. And he was a particularly religious man, and was you know was in that time when um, when religion teaching religion was very important. So he formed an organisation called the London Society or the Society to Teach the Blind Children of London to Read. So you very snappy, um, you know, a very highly sensitive uh, fundraising title, as you could imagine. But he met with a lady called Lydia Johnston, and Lydia Johnston was then the wife of the founder of Johnson Matthey, who, of course, are big um, commodity and gold dealers here in the city of London and have been for 177 years or 178 years. And um, Johnson Matthey... Uh, gave Lucas some money and um, also helped him to raise some money from other places and he founded a school up near Hatton Garden and um, uh, and he started to teach people um, what we call now Lucas type and we hold the original copy of um, uh, one of the Gospels in, in Lucas type. Uh, so we always say that um, you know we were an organisation that was born from a technological revolution. Uh, that might be pushing it, but when you look at things like Apple and uh, and so on today, but um, nonetheless, it was a major, major step forward because this was the first time that um, blind young people could sit down and um, and learn something independently in a quiet space and bring their own intellects to bear on the um, on the interpretation of what they were reading and it was an amazing it had amazing effects on um, on London and of course um, the Lucas type spread right across the um, the uh, British Empire and it was the major form of communication for blind people for many many years and there is a note um, of a trustee meeting where they sat down to consider this um, thing that came from France um, called Braille. Um, and they thought that actually the Braille was probably offered more flexibility and opportunities for learning than the Lucas type. Um, so they then began to promote Braille, which I think is just one of those tremendously selfless things that only good people can do and the organisation has flourished ever since but uh, it stayed in education Uh, it is in education today although um, over the past four years certainly um, since I arrived we've transformed the organisation so we don't now bring blind people to a central point to teach them because we were bringing people into a um, uh, into a, a beautiful college in Seven Oaks, which if people know Seven Oaks, it's uh, in a, one of the nicer, wealthier parts of the southeast. Um, we were giving them a fabulous education and then sending them back home where they had no friends. You know, they had different life experiences than the people around them, and all we'd simply done was we just isolated them from the circle of support that they could have developed had they been at home. So we uh, closed it down, um, and at the time we were helping about 150 young people, and I say helping in the, in the nicest way. Um, but today we are supporting over 1,700, and we've been able to get involved with parents and do lots of things that we wouldn't have done had we got the other model. But more importantly, you know, myself and, um, and the chairman of the society, a man called Ian Stevenson, when we spoke to the trustees, you know, we said, we have to face up to a reality, and that is that 175 years ago, blind young people were unemployed, depressed, lonely, unable to um, form close personal relationships, coming from broken homes, 
Um, and of course, at the time, they used to live in workhouses or later in the asylums of London. Um, and today, the only difference is that they live in supported living in a nice apartment someplace. But other than that, nothing has changed. So we have to say that we have failed. And the um, Einstein's law of insanity is if you continue to do the same thing and expect a different outcome, then you're insane. <laughs> um, so we thought we had to do something different. And we did. Um, and what we're doing now is is not rocket science. It's based on the most modern research available. And in London, of course, we have some tremendous world-class partners. So, you know, we, we work with Great Ormond Street Hospital and the experts there who understand chronic illness in, in, in children. Uh, we also um, work with um, the... Um, with Murfields, who's probably one of the best eye hospitals in the world, with Barts, which is the Royal London, so for and with Guys and Thomases, these hospitals know almost every blind child in London, one way or the other, and their circumstances. Um, and uh, when we went to them and said, "Look, this is what we're thinking of doing," they just said, "Wow, at last." You know, somebody has come talking the same language as what we've been talking about for at least 20 years. Um, and what can we do to help you? So, you know, these hospitals support us in, in, um, in what we're doing and some senior people are on our medical advisory panel. But the other thing is that, um, you know, we've, people who are doing research from around the world feed into us. Um, so we learn something new every day. And so I think we can say that in London... We're desperately trying to be world-class because London is a world-class place. Uh, we're trying to be cool because London is a cool place and um, blind kids want to be cool and we uh, want to hang out with the best because in London you can hang out with the best. So altogether we're um, you know, a London solution for London folk and hopefully world-class at the same time. But most importantly... Um, you know, I think we're doing something. And, and let me give you an example. Um, about um, three months ago, um, I was going around. We have uh, a couple of community-based houses where, um, you know, we support um, young blind children who want to go to school and don't want to live at home. Um, and we teach them what we call the blind skills um, and other skills as well but uh, you know we had a young man who came to us who hadn't spoken for probably two years he was blind totally depressed he was on um, on antidepressants um, his parents were at their wits end they didn't know what to do and, and quite frankly you know I think they thought well if we could do anything at all it would be better than nothing <clears throat> And um, because we adopt the thing called just enough support, um, so if you want, if because you're blind doesn't mean you don't have to make your bed, or um, you don't have to make your toast, or anything else. So if you were coming to us for a nice life, you don't come to us. You know, if you're coming to learn how to live like a student, then we, you know, come to us. We have people there who will make sure you don't fall downstairs or do something dangerous or, uh, or silly, um, and um, but who are there also to teach you some other skills uh, that you need to, uh, to succeed as a blind person. But they, anyway, there was a um, a young blind lady who, in, in the place who was in a wheelchair. Um, so um, this guy had a little bit of sight. So we gave him. We said your job is to make sure that um, Mary can get from um, her room to um, eating her dinner and he did and um, and then they um, he tried he went, he went further afield and within about four weeks he, you couldn't shut him up he was talking so much um, and then we found out that he was a brilliant singer I mean an amazing singer um, and that he had um, uh, he was a great storyteller so today and he's only been with us around six months. Um, he's been enlisted in a drama course at university, um, and he's pursuing drama and um, and music as a singer. And um, his parents, his dad, met me, um, and um, he was very tearful. Um, gave me a big manly bear hug, and you know when you're blind and you get picked up by a big manly bear hug person, scares the living daylights. I tell you, but um, he was just beside himself with joy you know, and uh, so are we 
but that's what happens when you you know when you say to a person you have to accept who you are and you got to get on with it yeah but people like us who who understand it probably can say it in a way that is more palatable than um, than society and maybe society wouldn't feel comfortable doing it um, but hey you know here we have a, a guy who's probably going to tell you jokes on the telly one day yeah. it goes without saying that if uh, people were to find out more about the organisation and uh, about any of the issues that we've been uh, talking about and want to educate themselves or just get in touch then uh, Google or another search engine is the way to go and what is the overall message that you're putting out well, look, um, a blind child can't wait. Um, we need money, and um, clearly every charity needs money, but we've got a really good um, cause for London kids. Um, just go online, uh, www.rlsb.org.uk, and um, if you have a few quid to spare, we'd be more than delighted to um, have it and to make good use of it on your behalf. Dr Tom Pay, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Dr. Tom Pay. Thanks to, to Catherine Payne, Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Enquiet Morph. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.